I want to preach a message that I've just simply entitled The Power of the Gospel. The Power of the Gospel. God, you have been so faithful to me. You've strengthened me to this point today after a, a late night, limited sleep. And you've put within my heart a message to share with these, your people. Thank you for the privilege of shepherding. Thank you for the privilege of leading us to this passages in the scripture. And Lord, I'm asking that you would help me now as I seek to communicate these truths effectively. And I know that can only be done if the Holy Spirit of God would take them and use them in each life. Lord, I, I ask that the very content of the message, the very title of the message would be seen today, the power of the gospel, that we would, uh, we would see that here in our midst, we'd understand it not just theoretically but experientially, that we would know and see you at work in our personal lives and in the lives of those around us as a result of this time in your word. So help and strengthen, cause our concentration and attention to be focused for these few moments together. In Jesus' name, amen. Please turn to Romans chapter 1, please. Romans chapter 1. I had every intention this week of continuing in our Come Back to Church series, and the Lord just uh, totally changed that. So uh, we're going somewhere else. So let's see where the Lord would have us go. Romans chapter 1. Just want to read two verses, give you just a little bit of context, and then uh, really just hammer some truth home. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The context behind our little text here, and we're not going to stay here, but the context, if you like, around this, it's about AD 56. The Apostle Paul has already faced incredible opposition to his ministry as an apostle. Uh, At the hands of the Jewish countrymen, at the hands of the Gentiles, he's been stoned, he's been dragged out of cities, he's been beaten, he's been maliciously attacked. His character has been assassinated on many occasions. And we're left to wonder a few things. Why, after all this time, after all this energy, is he not in a place of despondency? Why is the Apostle Paul not so discouraged? Why is the energy and the turmoil and the tribulation that he has experienced not caused him to say, this is all just a little bit too hard? Why has he not become a lethargic Christian? Why is his love not waning a little bit in all of these things? These are good questions because he has faced more than any one of us in this room, in this, this, uh, this role of being a Christian and serving the Lord, that the amount of things that have happened to this man. How is he continuing in his task as an apostle of the gospel? Well, we're given the answer in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. I'm not ashamed. I'm not shrinking back from this... Gospel, why Paul? Because it is the power of God unto salvation. I can't quit on this. 
I'm not withdrawing. I'm not shrinking away in fear. I'm not afraid of what men can do to this external part of my person, this body suit. I'm not afraid of that because of this truth, the power of the gospel. It would seem whatever this gospel is, it must be the revealed, miraculous power of God that brings about permanent change and that which Paul is prepared to die for. Why? Why does a man who has so much intellect, and he is an incredibly intellectual man, so much prestige in his former life, so much to give out to his Jewish race in the realm of of his faith prior to his conversion, why does this man now, having been converted, continue in this path all the days of his life so that one day he walks down those steps and his head is removed from his body for the cause of Jesus Christ? Why, Paul? Would you do that? And we might say, why, Peter, would you say, I don't want to be crucified like the Lord Jesus, turn me upside down on the cross, I don't want to die the same way, I'm prepared to go the full length. Why do all of these martyrs in history say, I'm prepared to hang on to the stake, you don't have to tie me down, I'm prepared to go the whole way with this? Why? Well, I would suggest to you that all of these people have this one thing in common. It's the power of the gospel That brings salvation to everyone who believes. They are committed. They are convinced. Nothing is going to move them. Nothing are they going to be ashamed in. And Paul makes this staggering statement. I am not ashamed. Do as you will. But I am not ashamed. And so naturally we need to ask the question then. Paul, what is this gospel that you're talking about? Because let me say this, if I may, by way of application, it must be a different gospel to what we see in many places today because it doesn't have the same commitment today. Christianity, for the most part, doesn't have the same commitment as what we see in the men of Scripture. What's happened? Well, there's got to be some sort of a difference then because this man saw the power of the gospel as being the ultimate thing in all the world that he was involved in. This consumed, this was his primary occupation in life. How did he get there and why? So we have to find out, well, what is this gospel? Now, I hope that in our church we have some understanding of the gospel because we spend so much time dealing with it and talking about it. But let me remind you again. The gospel, literally gospel, good news, is the good news that you and I, as heinous sinners, haters of God in our natural state, can stand before that holy and that righteous God, having been justified by faith because of the imputed merit and righteousness of Jesus Christ accomplished through his death and resurrection. The gospel is the fact that you and I, undeserving of any privilege, any opportunity to stand before a holy and a righteous God, can do so because of Jesus Christ. The gospel is that message that we can know intimately and love deeply God. The gospel is that which transports us from a place of spiritual death to a place of eternal life in Christ. The gospel is the means of real, lasting joy, hope and change. 
The gospel is the power of God that transforms a person from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And Paul unashamedly says, this good news has power and I'm prepared to stake my all on it. Because it is the life-changing message which brings about the redemption of sinners. We have to ask the question, Paul, okay, you're going to live your life this way. You're unashamed of this gospel. Very quickly defined, there's the gospel. Well, what kind of power? That's the question. What kind of power does it have? I know lots of things that have power. What kind of power are you talking about, Paul? And when we pull out our Greek concordance, we find that this is the word dunamis. It's from where we get the English word dynamite. It refers to ability, force, miraculous power, strength, limitless might. Now, when you and I think of power and might and strength, we might immediately think of some external attribute. We might see a bodybuilder in our mind who who has developed their muscles so much and they are so much stronger than the average individual. We might see that in our mind's eye. Or perhaps we look at... uh, a well-trained horse in the field that is about to run a race and you see those, those muscles in its legs and you say, wow, that is a powerful creature. Perhaps some of us would, would go to a, a farmhouse and we would see uh, in the shed there, we'd see a bulldozer and realise that that thing can lift so much weight. It has so much power behind it. It can pull stumps out of the ground. and We'd say, wow, that's power. Folks, we need to recalibrate our understanding of power. When we talk of gospel power for conversion, we are speaking of something that we can't even compare. This converting power is greater than when God spoke the world into existence. Because when God created the world, he created it perfect. But when God changes a person from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, he recreates that person. This is so much power available in this gospel that it is incomprehensible. Something that no man can accomplish. Something we can't even compare it to. It's this gospel, when believed, transforms the soul of a man or a woman. This is not just a a little change. that This is not a reform. We're not talking about someone makes a decision here and and, and they believe this for a little while and and then they go and do their own thing for the rest of their life. We're talking about life Soul-changing reality. No doctor can do that. No surgeon can do that. Uh, My brother's got some surgery coming up. They're going to do a lot of things in just a little while. But no surgeon can change the soul. It brings to life an otherwise dead person. It quickens and illuminates with light where once there was only darkness. In an instant of time, at a moment, this gospel power for conversion changes one whose soul is bound in sin and headed for hell and destruction to be filled with the light and the presence of God. And that person will never be the same again. It's an impossibility. I love how Charles Wesley writes some of his hymns. 
And most of you know this, I choose this hymn so often. On the third verse of And Can It Be, Charles Wesley writes, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the danger, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth and followed thee. Nobody, nothing. There is no other place in all of the world, in all of history, outside of the person and work of Jesus Christ, that this is a reality. We are looking here this morning at gospel power for conversion. That's what this whole first point is, gospel power for conversion. I want to ask a question here as we look at Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Here's a question that I want to answer for us this morning. What will the gospel do for me? What will the gospel do for me? What will this good news that Paul is staking his life on, what will it do for me? And we're taking this from the position of someone who is unsaved. In a moment, we're going to take the position of one who is saved in just a little while. But the gospel power in conversion, what will the gospel do for you this morning if you know not this reality? What will it do when you believe? Well, if you respond in faith to the Spirit's call to receive the gospel, you'll be changed for all eternity. And here are eight quick things. And there's much more than eight. Number one, you'll be saved from the penalty of sin. You'll be saved from the penalty of sin. Now, Christians, don't turn off for a moment. Because you may say, I know these realities, I know this experientially, I've seen this as a reality in my life. These are wonderful reminders of what the gospel has already done for you. And Paul does this all the time when he says, I remember who I used to be, I remember what I was and what Christ has done in my life. But if you this morning have never come to understand the gospel and its power, you will be saved from the penalty of your sin. You see, your sin's penalty is death. My sin's penalty is death. There is absolutely nothing we can do. There is a legal demand based on God's holiness. And that is that the soul that sins, it shall die. It must. Sin must die. It's an absolute reality. The question is, will I die in my sin? Or will I trust someone who died for my sin? That's the question. You will be saved from the penalty of sin. Number two, you will be brought into everlasting communion and fellowship with God. Now to an unsaved person who has not experienced this reality, the concept of God will be, why would I want to have any kind of a relationship with Isn't it just going to be boredom? Isn't it just going to be this this holy type living? I can't live for myself anymore. There's no fun. This is, this is the, the mentality of someone who has no understanding of the true conversion. Let me say to you, the Christian life is the greatest adventure in all the world. It is the greatest communion in all the world. And when my heart is changed, when the Spirit of God comes and quickens and makes me alive, I walk in fellowship with my God so that when I get in the car and I drive to Melbourne like I did yesterday, I can talk with my God all the way down. 
Now, he doesn't verbally respond to me, but I know that I know that I know that I have an entrance into the holy heavenly throne room whereby my prayer comes directly into the ears of my God through the person of Jesus Christ. I talk to him about all sorts of things and I fail all the time. But I tell you, I talk to him all the time. Do you do you have that relationship where it's not a hard thing to understand what Paul says when he says pray without ceasing? Because when you're walking in this communion, you just talk to the Lord about everything. You ask the Lord questions and you ask for wisdom and you seek his counsel and his help and he provides it. You have an everlasting communion. I am his and he is mine while God and I shall be. I am his and he is mine. That communion, when I come to the garden, I come to the garden alone while while the the dew is still on the rose and he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me that I'm his own. This is the joy of companionship and communion with our great God. If this does not connect with your spirit, you don't understand this. You've never been saved. Because this is what happens to the one who is converted by the power of the gospel. Number three, you will be given a new nature that comes only from God. So you may have tried reform. You may have tried to change and revolution and, and, and New Year's resolutions. And I'm, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And it just keeps on failing. And, and it, I just can't get... When you have a new nature, your appetites and your affections have changed from it being inward to being upward. Instead of it being about me, it's now a desire that doesn't come from me and an alignment of my will to someone greater than mine, whereby now I walk in his ways. I walk with him. I have a new nature. The old has passed away. Number four, what will the gospel do for me? You will be indwelt by God himself. I don't know. I can't even understand this concept. I don't know how this works. The great, majestic, transcendent, omnipresent, omnipotent God has made his abode within this flawed, fallible, foolish, frail man. And he's done the same for you. The Spirit of God has come to make it. This is his temple. You are his temple if you are his. That is an incredible thought. The God of all eternity dwells within me. I don't know whether that moves you this morning, but boy, that moves me that God would dwell within me. Number five, you will be able to understand the Bible. Corinthians tells us that the spirit of the man cannot discern spiritual things without the Holy Spirit living within. So at the moment of conversion, the Holy Spirit lives within and suddenly it all makes sense. Now, that doesn't mean I've got all the the, every jot and tittle. I understand every passage. I've interpreted it all correctly. No, but suddenly this book is now alive. It's not just black words on white paper like it was before I was a Christian. Now it makes sense. Now this connects with the Spirit of God because the Spirit of God who lives within me is the author of this book. And so it connects. Number six, you will have hope, joy, and the assurance of eternal life. You say hope for what? Hope for God's coming kingdom. And I don't mean a hope so. This is a hope, a certainty, a knowledge of the reality of truth. You'll have a joy that cannot be taken away. You say, but hang on, don't Christians struggle? Oh, yes, they do. Haven't I struggled? Oh, yes, I have. Have I lost my joy? Yeah, the moment I stop walking with the Spirit, the moment I stop trusting in the one who's in the boat with me, I lose my joy. 
but the joy is an eternal joy that's there. I'm just not walking in it. I'm just not living it. Number seven, you'll become a member of God's household. What will the gospel do for me? I have an entrance into God's family. Adopted. Adopted. Number eight, you will be equipped and empowered to serve God. What will the gospel do for me? The gospel, when believed by faith, when I trust in that work of Jesus Christ on the cross and his subsequent resurrection, when I trust in that for dear life and I cling to it with all that I am, I find that I am equipped and empowered to serve my God effectively. He gives gifts. He gives strength. He gives a family. He gives church. All of these things are mine because of the gospel. That's the gospel power for conversion. But secondly, the one I really want to focus on for just a few moments here is the gospel power for consecration. Gospel power for consecration. And I'll explain what I mean by that in just a moment. First Corinthians, please turn with me. Follow along as I read a portion here. First Corinthians chapter one. First Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Let me read the remainder of the chapter for us. First Corinthians 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We just want to look at verse 18 for a few moments together. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I want you to note very carefully the wording of this particular verse. Now, if you're familiar with older translations of Scripture, I think particularly here of the King James Version, the text reads, But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. That's what the text says in the King James. Now, it's usually at this point when I get into a discussion with someone who believes that the King James Bible is the only inspired word of God, say something along the lines of this. See, this is such a terrible situation. The modern translations say that we're not secure in our salvation at all. See, because in our translation it says here, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 
However, the rendering of the Greek here in this text says being saved. And it's vital we understand something here. This passage of scripture says we are being saved by the power of God. Now, does that mean, therefore, that we're not really secure in salvation? Not at all. Not at all. So let me just quickly walk us through this again. And I do this many times. I know that we have three parts to our salvation. We have justification, that is conversion, being declared righteous by the power of God. And then we have sanctification, which begins at that very moment of conversion where we begin on the process where the Spirit begins to uh, transform and conform us to the image of Christ. And then finally, at the end of our earthly life, we enter the place of glorification. Being saved does not mean an absence of security It means that in our sanctification, we are being sanctified. We are being saved. We are becoming more and more like the Lord Jesus. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 and 2, Paul says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Being saved. Again in 2 Corinthians 2.14. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved. Don't be afraid of the term being saved. The Christian, though declared to be eternally righteous, is still being saved in the realm of sanctification. If you are saved fully in the realm of sanctification, you must be dead. Because that's the only way that you can reach perfection as a Christian. By this I mean we are being made holy and like Christ. Don't let all this confuse you. All I want to uh, illustrate for us this morning is that conversion, that time when we actually make that decision, we are at that moment declared to be righteous positionally. But then in the sanctification process, we begin to change practically our affections, uh, our affiliations, uh, our attitudes begin to change so that we're more like Christ and we are being saved. We're being saved from our flesh, from ourselves. We stand in his robes of righteousness and we can never be stripped of them before God the Father. Let me put it into this little snapshot phrase. The gospel of Jesus Christ that has converted us now works to bring about our consecration. And we call that sanctification. In other words, consecration and sanctification is the breaking of sin's power in everyday Christian life. Again, it is the abolishing of the deeds of the flesh and the embracing of spiritual virtues and fruits. Made possible by the indwelling spirit of God. Let me make this statement too. Really important Christian for you to understand this. The rate of sanctification in the life of a Christian. Is in direct proportion to the yieldedness of the believer's will. To the work of the spirit. Let me say that again. The rate at which you become consecrated and more and more holy. And closer to that final position of perfection is in direct proportion to the yieldedness of the believer's will to the work of the spirit so you're like me because you're human and we often say no lord i'm not going there 
I'm not doing that. No, I don't want to give up that angry position that I have. No, I don't want to give up that lustful position that I have. No, I don't want to give up this, 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 this. And as we uh, continue to not yield to the Spirit of God, we stymie, we hinder our growth and our sanctification and consecration. God has given us the ability to say no to his Spirit, not finally, but in a daily basis, whereby we say, no, I'm not going to do that, Lord. And he continues to batter us until we come back to the place where we say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. And we continue to be consecrated. I'd like you to quickly turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I want to hit a home run truth here before I uh, give us just a, a short list of some Questions to think about as we finish. Second Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Hallelujah. Who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses has read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all... With unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. That last portion of scripture tells us that as I gaze, as I look, as I concentrate on the character and on the gospel and the power of it, I will be changed. I will be changed. See, here's the principle. What you concentrate on, you will conform to. What you gaze at, you will become. That's the reality of our Christian life. So here's the important truth. Here's the climactic moment. Stay with me as we close together here. Most Christians today think that the gospel is for the unbelievers. The good news of the gospel is so that lost people can be saved. And that's true. 
But nothing could be further from the truth. It's not exclusively for the lost person. You see, it's only through a deeper and ever-increasing knowledge of God's gospel that the believer can change from one degree of sanctification to another. If you're satisfied with staying on the milk of the gospel, you will not be transformed quickly. The power of the gospel in the life of the believer must not be underestimated. The gospel is the grand theme of the entire Bible and it is the duty and the delight of every Christian to seek it out daily and plumb its depths. That's our duty and that's our delight to do it. We trust it. We live by it. We're transformed through it and we die clinging to it. I began by saying all the maladies of the soul are cured through the gospel. So here's the question as we close. What will the gospel do for the believer? What will it do? And we're going to be highly practical here as I close. What will the gospel do for the believer? Seven things. And some of these are incredibly personal for each of us. Some of these may be shocking for us. The gospel will free the believer from fleshly addictions. Drugs. Cigarettes. Video games. Pornography. Self-abuse, overeating, bulimia, alcoholism, masturbation, induced adrenaline rushes, masochism, gambling, bodybuilding, codependency, crime, energy drinks, coffee, hoarding, shopping, self-mutilation, Voyeurism. Some of you are saying, hang on, I had a coffee this morning. The gospel hasn't rescued me from a coffee. I had an energy drink. This is not what I'm saying. I'm talking about addiction. I'm talking about that which I cannot get rid of myself. Are we we clear? You understand what I'm saying here? I'm not saying it's wrong to drink a cup of coffee. I'm not saying that it's wrong to have an energy drink. I'm not saying that some of the things on this list are by themselves not wrong. They may be amoral themselves, these things. Not immoral, amoral, without any uh, morality attached to it. I'm talking about addiction. I'm talking about what the Apostle Paul said. I will be brought under the power of nothing. Nothing. Now as we come to a place of counselling one another... As we come to a place where we're looking out for one another, some of us are going to look through that list and say, I have a problem. The power of the gospel, when walked in and concentrated upon and taken into the heart, into our inner person, will free us from addiction. It will. Now, some would say, Isn't, aren't you giving us medical advice? No, I'm giving you biblical soul advice. You see, psychology is poorly worded because psyche 
literally means soul. The study of the soul. Let me give you just a, uh, a little illuminating, awakening thought here. There's only one place in all of the world where you can find help for the soul. It's right in front of us. Now, please, again, don't let me take away from the fact that I believe there's professionals out there who can help with all kinds of stuff. But nobody but someone who is spirit filled and walking in the spirit day by day so that they can assist you, can help with the word of God, provide you with the means by which the gospel will free you from addiction. You say, I cannot kick this addiction. I cannot deal with this thing that's going on in my private life. Let me assure you that the gospel can. I had the privilege yesterday of witnessing the gospel do something in someone's life who has been wasting their life for nearly 20 years. That's the reason we came to this this morning. For nearly 20 years, I witnessed an individual who I love dearly walk away from the Lord. I know that I know that this individual has a spirit of God because there is a, there's a kicking and a beating and a screaming all the way down that slippery slope to destruction. They know it and they have known it. And I rejoice to watch that individual say, the gospel is wooing me back again. It's bringing me... He will not leave me alone. And all of the things that are going on in my life, the power of the gospel is at work. And I want to remind us, we have the answer. We have the truth for the soul's maladies. And the gospel frees us from these fleshly addiction. Because you know what? These are soul issues. These are not flesh issues. These are soul issues. Number two... The gospel transforms our attitudes and behaviours. Depression. Now, we pause and say there is a, a real clinical tested depression. I'm talking about spiritual depression. Spiritual depression. Anger. Violence. Theft, homosexuality, laziness, self-pity, lying, hypocrisy, discouragement, coveting, self-condemnation, anxiety, self-centeredness, pride, superstition, blame-shifting, brooding, bitterness, Fear, hate, fits of rage, despair, phobias, perfectionism, people-pleasing, vandalism. The gospel, when walked in, transforms us from these old life issues, these dead things, into a new life so that the kleptomaniac doesn't need to steal anymore. And that's why Ephesians chapter 4 is able to say, let him that stole... Steal no more. Let him that told lies, let him be honest. How is it possible, Paul? The power of the gospel changes us. It turns us inside out. It creates a whole new person here. So that though I bring into this Christian life all of my past and my history, I don't have to any longer walk in it. And as I will concentrate on the gospel, these things will begin to subside. Number three, the gospel implants... Righteous virtues. 
You cannot fake selfless love. You can't, not ultimately. The gospel places within us selfless love. A love that isn't self-focused. Selfless love. Contentment. True contentment's only found in the gospel. Grace. Giving what that person does not deserve. Forgiveness. Only in the gospel is there real forgiveness. Only can I really forgive that individual in my past who has caused me no end of grief in whatever category. Only through the gospel can I truly forgive. Humility, repentance, faith, dependence, obedience, fellowship, peace. The gospel implants righteous virtues. Number four, we're almost there. What will the gospel do for the believer? The gospel transforms our thought life. The man or woman who wrestles so much with purity, the gospel transforms our thought life. We get right thinking about the character of God through the gospel. We get right thinking about the church. Through the gospel. You see, when I have the opportunity to counsel people, and it often happens that people are, uh, have been so much demolished and destroyed in their Christian faith by uh, what a church did there or what this person at that church did or the deacon or the pastor, and the, there's all kinds of hurt. The reality is the gospel helps us see the church for what it is and it recalibrates our thinking. So we have right thinking about the church. And there may be great hurt of, involved there, but it's also the place, it's the group of people that have been purchased by the precious blood of Christ, and we're all sinners. And we're all, we all mess up. And we have problems. And the gospel brings us back to a reality of church and what it is. Number five, the gospel transforms our communication. It guards our tongue When we walk in the gospel, we exercise self-control in verbal speech. Don't we need that? Tongue is like a little fire. Number six, the gospel soothes and heals the wounds of the past. Divorce. Adultery. Church discipline. Physical abuse, emotional abuse, verbal abuse, sexual abuse. The gospel soothes and heals those wounds that no other person can do that. Number seven, and lastly, the gospel transforms our relationships. Obviously, number one is with God. Our relationship with God is transformed by his gospel. But our marriages are transformed. You say, but you don't understand, I'm married to someone who's unsaved. It'll still transform your marriage. Because Christ, in that marriage, whether you're a husband or wife, as a Christian, it will transform your marriage. Because now you have Christ. It'll transform relationships at church. We'll suddenly realize, wait a minute, 
that person sitting next to me, they're not just they're not just a member, they're not just someone who just attends here. This is my blood bought brother or sister in Christ who's hurting, and my heart hurts for them because I've been transformed by the gospel and I know who they are in Christ. They have the same identity. We are as close as Christ and God the Father is because we've been redeemed by the same one. So whoa, that transforms church. The gospel transforms a church. Transforms your work. Suddenly where you perhaps were not someone who worked hard. Now you say, I'm not doing this for you, boss. I'm doing this for you, king. My work life changes. Strained relationships. Family members, children. Enemies. You know how the gospel does? It says instead of wanting to literally take you out... I am going to pour blessings upon your head. Romans chapter 12. That's what the gospel does. So what do we do with all of that church here? What do we do? Well, as I observe today, and I'm not saying in our little local assembly, but today we have so many Christians that are in bondage to all of these things, all of these uh, addictions and attitudes and behaviours and, and the lack of virtuous, virtuous righteous living, uh, the, uh, our thought life, our communication, our wounds are not healed, uh, our relationships are, are strained and broken. The answer must be, for the most part, Christians aren't walking in the power of the gospel because the word tells us that we are being saved by the gospel, by the power of it. So the question has to be asked this morning, individually, Christian. Are you walking in the power of the gospel? Are you becoming more and more like Christ actively? Now, I know passively that's occurring because he began the work and he's going to finish it. But I have a responsibility. I need to work out my own salvation with fear and trembling. There's something that I have to do. Are you walking in this? Because I've come to realize more and more we have such limited time. We have such limited time in this life and it's about him. It's about his gospel and the transforming nature of the gospel. And if we can't clean up our act through the gospel, how are we ever going to be able to help anybody else? How are we ever going to be able to preach the gospel to a a, a kingdom of darkness out there when they look at our lives and say, well, why would I want to be like that? Your gospel doesn't do anything. Your gospel doesn't change. You're just like me. They ought to be able to say, what is it that has changed you? I know what you were like. I saw you. Wow, I want what you have. And that's what Peter says, isn't it? They ask of the hope that lies within. Have you personally experienced the power of the gospel for conversion? And then Christian, are you presently walking in the power of the gospel for everyday life and consecration? Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, the words that you've given. Thank you for the texts that we have looked at. Thank you for the attention of your people this morning. Uh, Lord, I I don't know, uh, Lord, whether this uh, resonates, whether it uh, makes sense, whether it comes together as unified uh, thinking for us. I I don't know, Lord, how it was communicated, but I pray that you'd use it uh, in our lives, that you'd use it in the lives of those that we would come into contact with, uh, that, Lord, we would be very careful to ensure that we ourselves have seen the power of the gospel at work in our own lives through conversion 
And that now as Christians we would be walking in the reality of this consecration that comes by means of the power of the gospel. Uh, Lord, we uh, are so much in bondage to so many things so much of the time. Free us, we pray, that we would walk humbly with our God, uh, that we would leave all besetting sins, uh, Lord, our addictions, our faulty thinking, and that we would be fruitful Christians, that we would be holy and blameless before you, which is our calling Thank you for the privilege it is to walk with you, to have fellowship with you. Lord, we look forward to the day at the end of life where you will say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into your rest. We look forward to the rest, but, O Lord, the work is to be done now. Help us, O Lord, to, to make application as you would show us and see fit. Thank you for this time that we have together. In Jesus' name, amen.